Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Ireland's first public library, Marsh's Library in Dublin. And we'll be finding out why it was founded and how it has evolved over the centuries. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Marsh's Library was founded in 1707 by Archbishop Narcissus Marsh as the first public library in Ireland. Although there were earlier libraries, they were either in the university or in churches. This library was intended to give everyone and anyone who was able to read a place to study. And today it welcomes visitors and researchers from around the world. It has a wonderful website, marshlibrary.ie. And so to discuss the founding of Marsh Library, to find out about the mummy that was discovered there in the 19th century and lots more besides, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Jason McElligot is the director of Marsh's Library and is an expert on early modern print culture, censorship and the history of the book. Amy Boylan is assistant librarian at Marsh's Library and is an expert on the special collections there, as well as teaching with special collections. Dr. Janae Olsman is the IRC Enterprise Partnership Scheme Fellow at the Department of French and Francophone Studies at University College Dublin and is a postdoctoral researcher who is working on French collections in Marsh's Library and also on the use of AI technology to examine this material. So we'll definitely be talking about that as well. But Jason, I want to kick off with you and a question about for those who aren't familiar with Marsh's library, what is it? Where is it? What do you do? Yeah, Patrick, and I suppose a lot of people, particularly Dubliners, won't know uh, much about Marsh's library. I might not even know uh, where it is. When when I first uh, was going for the for the job interview and I was late, I jumped in a taxi and there was a, a taxi driver who told me he was from the Liberties and I said, uh, I'm looking for Marsh's library. And he said, uh, sorry, I don't know where that is. So uh, it wouldn't be uncommon for people not to know where Marsh's library is traditionally. And essentially, it's a small library uh, just beside St. Patrick's Cathedral on, on Patrick's Close. And halfway along, there's a tiny little uh, iron gate. Uh, you go up the steps uh, from uh, from the street. And as you go up the steps uh, from the street, you enter into a building built in the early 18th century by Archbishop Narcissus Marsh as the first public library uh, in Dublin, but also the public first public library uh, in Ireland at the time. And Archbishop Marsh wanted a library which could uh, serve the public broadly defined uh, with the latest and, and, and best books. So really, we are perfectly preserved today after three centuries, 300 years later, uh, the library is still in the same place, the same building, the same library furniture and even the same books. And in some ways, it's a museum of what a library looked like in the early 18th century. And we have visitors who come from all over the world uh, to see the library. So uh, it really is a, a remarkable survival. And it's it's sort of an accidental survival, Patrick, really. You know, if you think about the the range of things that have changed in the local area, in the liberties, the, the, the number of historic buildings that were destroyed, it's entirely accidental that the building has survived perfectly intact uh, for three centuries. What are you hoping for? Would you like Would you like people to just pop in and have a look? Would you like them to have a look at the website and, and see what's there and then maybe come in and have a look? 
Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we've really kind of focused on the fact that we do want people to come in. We want uh, to welcome people in, different types of people. You know, when I started about about a decade ago, people would often say, oh, we never thought this place would, would welcome the likes of us or we'd be welcome. Uh, and we've really worked hard to sort of change that that perception that it's open to to, to everyone really to come in and uh, particularly people from uh, the locality and, and from Dublin as well. So there's a lot to see in there. We always have a great uh, exhibition on. Uh, and then it can't help to have a look at the at the website, just the range and depth of, of the things we do, you know, with uh, uh, school children, uh, students uh, locally, but also uh, the local community as well. It's it's a real kind of hive of activity. Now, we have to say something about Narcissus Marsh, because first of all, it's an incredible <laughs> name. And I saw that his brothers had equally or even more uh, obscure names. But uh, he was from England and he, and he was provost of Trinity for a time. He was. Uh, he was uh, from a relatively uh, poor background and worked his way up through the church and academia in in England. He was a, an academic at Oxford and uh, was a specialist in, in Hebrew and taught Hebrew uh, at Oxford. And his brother's names, I think, were Anesiophorus and Epaphroditus. So, you know, <laughs> Narcissus was... Not the best name, but it was better than the than the other poor brothers. You just think the school playground must have been terrible. You know, introducing yourself on the first day. Hello, my name is Epaphroditus and Anesiophorus. But anyway, so Archbishop Marsh came to Ireland as the provost of Trinity College Dublin. He then decided that really uh, he wanted to improve the access to books and learning in Dublin. He tried to change the rules in Trinity to allow the public access, but he couldn't. And therefore, he decided to build uh, a public library open to all graduates and gentlemen, which opened in the in the early 18th century. And as I say, it's it's remained, you know, pretty much perfectly intact internally uh, since it first opened. And a visionary then when it came to books and reading and the power of the word, maybe not quite as visionary when it came to religious toleration or some elements like that. But definitely when it came to the library, this was a, a great breakthrough. Yes, absolutely. And he, he, he certainly, he was one of the Lord's Justices of Ireland. So he was centrally involved in the penal laws against Catholics and, and, and dissenting Protestants. Uh, and it is an unusual thing that the library had, the library had uh, no uh, religious bar in the, in the early 18th century. And that was unusual, I suppose, for, for a public building uh, in the early 18th century. I tend to think that that's really because uh, he didn't think that anyone from uh, outside the established church would come to the library. Uh, and that meant that during the 18th century, when uh, the Catholic middle class grew up, uh, it meant that there was no religious bar on, on Catholics coming into the library. So he was somebody who was certainly centrally involved in the establishment after the Battle of, uh, of the Boyne. The library was built with uh, some funds from lands confiscated after the Battle of the Boyne. So for him, education and knowledge and public learning and the public library wasn't a neutral endeavour. It was pretty much part of state power. And the the architect who built uh, the library, Sir, Sir William Robinson, was also involved in building military installations at exactly the same time. So in a way, the library at the time was intended as a fact on the ground. You know, this was part of the settlement after the Battle of the Boyne. It would determine how the future uh, saw the past and it would it would determine uh, how the past was seen in Ireland but because Irish society changed over the intervening centuries his remarkable gift 
changed as well. And it was, from the 19th century, very much open to uh, all of the public, uh, Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. And Amy, Jonathan Swift was just down the road at St. Patrick's Cathedral and he was one of the first governors of Marsh's library. Yes, he was one of our governors. He didn't really get on very well with Marsh, apparently. So there's all sorts of stories about him talking about how Marsh smelt and being very unkind about him and things like that. But I think um, you have sort of a clash of personalities on the one hand. You've got Swift, who obviously somebody who doesn't really hold back with his opinions. Marsh, who is a very sort of serious scholarly type. Um, when he was, uh, he, he wrote a diary and in his diary he's sort of chastising himself when he lives in, when he's in Oxford, playing music with his friends on Wednesday evenings that, you know, he should be, this is a waste of his time and he should be committing himself to more scholarly endeavours. And um, I think, I like to think kind of when I'm talking to people, giving them tours of the library and things like that, saying that he definitely wouldn't be a, a, an academic today in this sort of publish or perish kind of environment. He was a very sort of scholarly, bit of a loner, I suppose, in some ways. Um, there's also, there was a sort of ill will between them as well. Um, Swift felt a little bit like Marsh had been responsible for him sort of being held back career-wise in the church. And um, after Marsh died in 1713, Swift said that basically no one would really care. Um, no one would be sorry or happy except for his successor, basically, in, in his role as he eventually goes on to become the Archbishop of Armagh. So um, definitely no love loss, but... Um, we do know that Swift spent time in the library, obviously as a governor. We only last year we revealed in the uh, old reading room. So it's an L-shaped building and there are two galleries and they're joined in the centre by um, our old reading room. So this is where scholars would have read until about a decade ago. And um, there, were, there are bookshelves all around this room and one of them was kind of taken, revealed um, a fireplace that was hidden behind it since the 1980s. We knew it was there, but it had been uh, sort of hidden away. And this corner is known uh, affectionately as Swift's Corner, because apparently this is where he used to sit when he came into the library. And um, the, there's a window overlooking St. Patrick's as well. So he was able to sit there and kind of overlook his domain as the dean of St. Patrick's. And also it's right next to this fireplace, which would have been the only place that had any heat in the library and it is very cold in there. We were doing a stock check in January this year and it was about five degrees at one stage in the galleries. So um, having a room where you could warm yourself, definitely very, very appealing. And actually, is that an issue for you, making sure that the books are properly preserved and at the right temperature and not in too much sunlight? And There's all these extra concerns now that people have that they wouldn't have been aware of back when it was founded. Yeah, well, we're, we're quite lucky. So obviously those are concerns and these are things that, that museums and libraries take very seriously, obviously. And a lot of places would have... Um, temperature controls in their stacks where they keep their books. Obviously, we're very different because we're an 18th century library and our books are out on the shelves. And that's part of the appeal of Marsh's, really. It's just, you can hear people's intake of breath when they come into the library to see and see it for the first time. How sort of just shocked by the beauty of it, I suppose they are. And um, the, the, the reality is they're out on the shelf and they need to remain out on the shelf. Uh, we're lucky because obviously we live in a fairly temperate climate, so there aren't too many temperature fluctuations. Books really don't like changes. 
So I would say temperature is reasonably regular. Changes in humidity can be a big deal because that'll often cause, um, you know, potentially can cause mold outbreaks and things like that. So far, we've done pretty well. Obviously, you get kind of isolated incidents of that kind of thing. It, It will be interesting to see over the next couple of years, over the next decade, as climate change becomes more of an issue. And particularly as we've kind of experienced over the past couple of weeks, this this these warmer but also wetter summers that we're having and um, the kind of effect that that will have. But we are lucky we have a conservator on site. We're very vigilant ourselves. We're able to pick up on, you know, any problems, things like that. But it's just it's the nature of working with books. This is always a bit of a concern. But, um, you know, these books are well made from linen rags the paper is of incredible quality these some of our books go back our printed books to the 1470s they will definitely be here in another 500 years whether or not books that were printed in the 19th century on paper filled with acid and things that you don't really want your paper made out of that's sort of a different question Janae you're over from the United States doing some very interesting research here how did you find out about Marsh's library and uh, and the collections that you wanted to work on uh, well, I first heard about Marsha's library actually um, from uh, Catherine Ibbett years ago saying that um, there were some amazing Huguenot materials at Marsha's library. And so I, I, it had been on my radar as a I, I dream of going there someday kind of location. Uh, and then I, I saw the job ad. Otherwise, I, I would not have had this incredible opportunity. So tell us about what, what are you working on? So I'm working on the Elie Bouéraud correspondence. So Elie was the first librarian at Marsha's library. And he brought over with him, he was a religious refugee from France. So um, in 1685, it became finally uh, illegal to be uh, Protestant in France. And so Elie and his family, as much of his family as he could take with him, um, fled after already having endured really over a decade of significant persecution. So he saw um, the his home church destroyed by the government, for example. Soldiers had been quartered in his home. Uh, one of his daughters had been taken from him and and, and placed in a convent in, in hopes of, of her conversion, but also sort of as a family hostage. And he had been, he was a, a practicing doctor for many, many years, um, but he had been barred from medical practice um, along with his fellow uh, Huguenot physicians um, for his his religion. So he no longer could practice his job. Um, he no longer had his place of worship. Um, and, and he himself had actually been imprisoned and um, sent to other provinces in, in, in France before finally fleeing the country. Um, and when he did, fortunately for us, he managed to bring with him um, over 2,000 books that um, became part of um, Marsh's original collections, as well as this huge inventory of over 1,200 letters of personal correspondence um, that he had received in the 20-odd years leading up to his exile. Um, and these letters come from over 100 different correspondents, male and female, Protestant and Catholic. Um, and it's really this beautiful memento, really, this this conservation of, of his world to some degree, of, of his intellectual growth, of his family relationships, of his religious relationships, and also his experiences and, and the experiences of, of those around him of, of persecution leading up to exile. So it's it's kind of this fascinating range of things of everything from birth announcements and um, because he was a doctor, a lot of the letters are, are medical in nature. So there are um, prescriptions. There's advice on how to deal with two years worth of diarrhea, which, dear Lord, that seems like a really unpleasant experience. You've also got um, personal drama. So friends 
um, you know, a chair of theology acting as a matchmaker for a mutual friend of theirs. And and then you've also got these um, these really intellectual letters. He was, he was an active member of the Republic of Letters, and um, he himself had been um, trained in theology, also spent time in Paris. And so he was very um, well-versed in uh, literary studies, composed poems in some of the letters, but he also served as an editor. So there's this really fascinating um, interplay between the book collections at Marsh's and the letters themselves, because some of the letters are actually documenting um, the, the writing and the editing of the books in the collections or the purchasing of the books in the collections. So you've got you've got book trade and book history and commerce, but you've also got intellectual histories. This community is, is working together to, to write these books, to edit these books, and in a, a very strict um, censorship situation to get permission to publish these books. Um, and so the letters have this beautiful opening for for future studies on the collections themselves. Um, and so I'm really fortunate to be working on transcribing those so that the public can see what they say, even if they maybe can't decipher the old handwriting. And what is it like working in Marsh's library and being around, surrounded by all these books? Because I sometimes find now when I'm working on something, uh, a lot of the material has been digitised and it's not really the same. You're going on a database and you're, you know, it's all neat and in front of you. But there is something about having the original in your hands. Absolutely. Um, So I have to say, I've said again and again, um, I feel like I'm walking into a treasure trove every day. Um, When I come into the library, not only is the building itself beautiful and the people who work there are absolutely lovely, um, the materials themselves are sometimes breathtaking. So some of these letters have gorgeous wax seals. Um, They have these fantastic watermarks. So when the paper was made, these um, these images and and words um, embedded into the paper to identify the the paper makers um, for tax purposes and all kinds of things. But uh, getting to look at these materials, to, to see the hands, to see the tears, to see the teardrops and these sorts of, and even in, in one case, partial fingerprints uh, in the letters, it's just, it, it creates a different connection to, to the people. Um, I will say, however, though, that we are very fortunate that Marsha's has, um, has digitized um, these letters and is going to make the images and the transcriptions available on its catalog online. Um, because that will help people in the public who maybe are curious to to see, well, what would I be interested in? When you we see a catalog entry, it's it's not necessarily immediately clear to you how amazing this physical object would be to see in person. And so it's it's fabulous that um, people abroad like like myself normally, but also locals can get a chance to see what is in this amazing collection of letters. So that's that's a lovely thing. But yeah, it's fabulous to be there in person. Yeah, Jason, that is the tension these days between uh, the ease and convenience of having it digitised and, 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 and it makes such a difference, you know, whether you're teaching it or doing your own research. But but then, of course, it is looking at the originals. And when you can do a bit of both, that's probably the, the ideal thing. Yeah, that's that's really important for us. And it's something that we do with a with a lot of students. Uh, we have a lot of student groups coming in from the local universities in Dublin, DCU, uh, UCD, Trinity and, and Maynooth, but also a wider uh, afield. We have a couple of classes that come uh, have come over the last few years from uh, the UK, come specially to Dublin and then uh, done a tour because there's nothing that can replace that sense of seeing the original objects and getting a sense of not just the text, because nowadays, as, as you know, you can usually get uh, any text a disembodied text online, but just seeing how the book is produced, how it's bound, also how readers have 
read the books, the, the marks they've left in it, the messages. Uh, one really interesting project we have at the moment, and it's, I think it's really captured people's imagination, is we've gone back through all of the 25,000 books in the collection, searching for ownership marks, and we've discovered uh, quite a number of the books from the 16th and 17th century owned by women, and and particularly uh, a woman, uh, Margaret Usher, uh, who was resident in Dublin in the 1670s, who had quite a significant uh, collection of uh, of books uh, which she'd been buying in the secondhand market, but also new as well. So, so it's really interesting being able to show students who are so adept, and they're I suppose they, to use the horrible terminology, they're digital born. You know, they're used to the digital. That's their default. But actually showing them that in understanding a pre digital age, you have to look at the pre digital objects or uh, or the books, and just getting them to learn the different ways in which the books can sort of encode different meanings or provide different perspectives than the online screen. So it's not that, that we're trying to replace the, the online screen. It's great, as you say. It's really, really accessible. Uh, when you want to look at something at nine o'clock at night, you know, when the library is closed, it's great and, and so on. But the, the two really do complement each other. And scholarship really has changed. Like in the past, I think, you know, people were just really interested in the content. What is in the documents? What does it say? We just need the text. Yeah. Whereas now... You know, I think the last maybe two decades, maybe a little bit more, it's about the binding, it's about the annotations and markings, and it's about the paper. It's it's so much about the object itself as well, and the, and the history behind that, the story that it tells. Yeah, and 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 that is that has been a, a big shift. That there's so much more to to a book than just the physical letters printed on the page. And I don't mean it in a sort of a very anarchy or nerdy sense, although I am very anarchy and nerdy about, about books. I mean it in terms of understanding what that book meant in the society in which it was produced and in which it circulated and what it meant to people. Why did people, for example, if you think about Boero, uh, he's fleeing persecution. We have, unfortunately, tens of thousands of people uh, fleeing persecution uh, in various places across the, the, the world at the moment, but they don't tend to bring collections of 2,200 books with them. They don't have the opportunity. So what is it about someone like Boero that he brings all of these books with him uh, into exile? What is it about Archbishop Marsh that he's obsessed with producing this uh, library produ- uh, and put, pouring his money into it, that he leaves his collection of, of very important uh, books so it's when you understand what the book means to these people, then you get, a, I think, a, a broader perspective on what was going on in that society and how people interacted with each other. So one of the interesting things that I'm always struck by is how often people gave books as presents to friends and family and people they esteemed. So there are a lot of books, uh, and uh, Jane was showing me some uh, recently, which uh, friends have inscribed to Elie Boero as tokens of affection, and they've being kept uh, on the shelves for three centuries. So so books are, are important. As you say, it's not just uh, the printed words, it's the whole world that surrounds them. Okay, well, we are talking history and tonight we are talking about the history of Marsh's Library. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be finding out about the mummy that was discovered in the library as well as what's in some of the special collections. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about the history of Marsh's Library. And we have a wonderful panel of experts in studio tonight. Dr. Jason McGilligot, who's the director of Marsh's Library, Amy Boylan, assistant librarian at Marsh's Library, and Dr. Janae Oldsman, IRC 
Enterprise Partnership Scheme Fellow at the Department of French and Francophone Studies at UCD and postdoctoral researcher at Marsh's Library. But Amy, talk to me about the mummy that was discovered in the library in the 19th century. <laughs> well, when people come into the library, they're always dying to hear stories about ghosts and things like that. And we, you know, there's the odd, I think there's no 300 year old building that isn't going to amass a few stories. Um, but one that is 100% factual and that we know definitely happened because it's quite well documented is that in 1888, um, a man called George Stokes had just started as the keeper of marshes. So that was Jason's role back in the what, what it was called until quite recently. And um, just after starting, so you can imagine you've taken on a big responsibility, he found a mummy in one of the presses in the second gallery of the library. So it's a, a kind of a quite small little press just as you're coming into the second gallery. Anyone who's ever worked in libraries or been in libraries knows they amass a lot of stuff over time. So maybe they wouldn't be that surprised. Uh, but essentially, the, the mummy was found with um, a lot of sort of other books and kind of detritus, for want of a better word, around it. And uh, you can imagine Stokes having just taken over was a, a bit concerned about what might come of this, that there might have to be an inquest. Uh, so essentially he wanted this dealt with as quickly as possible, called in a friend from uh, the anatomy department in Trinity who came up. The mummy was taken down to Trinity um, sort of looked at, examined a little bit, all of this in, in 1888, actually got reported in the newspapers as well and kind of ends up in newspapers not only in Ireland but in the UK and even in the US in the US because obviously this is a fairly big deal in 1888. And uh, a few tests are done on it. Uh, the anatomist kind of decides that it's uh, about 3,500 years old or thereabouts, definitely an Egyptian mummy, young male, um, and then... Nothing else is heard about it. Obviously, it just remains on Trinity. Nothing else is heard about it until 2011, when a couple of archaeologists were down in um, Trinity. I think their anatomy, uh, the, the anatomy department was moving buildings down at Trinity at the time anyway. So there'd been stories circulating, as often happens with this kind of thing, where there were, you know, there were tales told of a mummy somewhere under the floorboards or under a bench or something like that in the anatomy building. And um, it was discovered and um, minus its head and one of its hands. So whether or not, I think there's still a little bit of doubt over whether the head was definitely there when it left marshes, whether the hand was there. Um, but some, it was a, some, a CT scan was done on it, just basically confirming what was already assumed by the anatomy professor in the, the late 19th century anyway, that it was Egyptian and about 3,500 years old and a male between about 25 and 40 with some kind of congenital deformities in his arm, I think. Uh, what's happened to the head? Who knows? Is it on someone's mantelpiece somewhere? Who knows? Um, I, God, this is probably a bit grim, but I sometimes think with Victorians, we're thinking, you know, that the hand might have been ground down to be consumed as some kind of elixir or what have you. But um, it's still in Trinity. It's, I think that there's, it's, it, he's in a, the, the uh, mummy is in a sarcophagus and it looks a little bit like it's been standing upright at some stage. So it may have been on display at some, we're, we're not really sure kind of what happened to it in those intervening years. 
but um, yeah, kind <laughs> of the. And Amy, do you have a favourite uh, in in terms of the collections? Because <laughs> there are wonderful, um, you know, some of the books would have been pre-owned. So there's wonderful inscriptions that you have, yeah. books that come in where you see messages from from people and that you're getting an insight into their lives and what they were interested in. Are there any of these uh, uh, books and ex- collections that you have that are meaningful to you? Absolutely. And I think that's a nice way to phrase it because I think people are always like, oh, what's the book you would save or what's your favourite book? And they expect it to be something of sort of financial value. But actually it is the books that have sort of that, that allow you a glimpse of a reader that tell you a little bit about someone's life, I think, that you would maybe grab. So there's there's lots of these, some of which Jason has already mentioned, particularly because, you know, we have four collections and they're all they were all owned by men. They were all owned by clergymen, quite prominent members of society. But within those collections, it is lovely to see other people given a little bit of a voice. So within the Stillingfleet collection, which is our biggest collection of 10,000 books, um, there are books that belong to his wife, his second wife and his daughter, Anne. And what I really like about these is that Elizabeth's always sort of, you know, she writes her name. She always says, you know, this is my book, which again, kind of asserting her, you know, her authority or just that how important it is for her to be able to say that she owned this. But there's a couple that belong to Anne where she says, you know, this was a book given to me by, by my father or this is a book about with moral stories. And it's a really nice little book or I really enjoyed it. And kind of getting a little bit more, not just the name, a little bit, kind of a little bit of the personality comes through there, I think. Um, it's also interesting to see where people write their names and what they, how they address former owners. So there's a, a book I can think of in particular. It's just a, it's a, a book on Greek pronunciation that would have been sort of a standard textbook in universities in the 16th century. But you've got the first person's name has written his name in Latin and then somebody's come along, scratched his out uh, where he's written, I own this. They, they've changed it to the past tense. Then they've written in their name. Someone else has come along and scratched out their name and it's like, it's mine. And someone else and is like, my friend is saying this is definitely my book. So I kind of I love those little things. I think they're, they're kind of and Jason, you can tell a lot by looking at someone's collection. Like uh, when you look at uh, the books that Narcissus Marsh owned himself, the incredible range—a bit of astronomy, a bit of religion, some signs, some history. Like there's a bit of everything. He's not just focused on like I might be with history books or something. He's reading everything. Yeah, the, these people, and particularly Narcissus Marsh. These collectors, they they lived, I think, in a world where it was still possible for an educated person to know a little bit about everything. As you say, we're we're so specialised at the moment at home. You know, I I have history and I have particularly 17th century history and I have 17th century English history and Irish history. Whereas Archbishop Marsh lived in a world which uh, he knew uh, a lot about books and printing across the whole range and gamut of subjects. So it starts with astronomy and goes all the way down to zoology with the literature uh, in between. And uh, some of the books are very rare. Some of them are very valuable in cultural terms, but also financial terms. But I think modern readers are often, uh, modern visitors are often struck by just the range of subjects, as you mentioned. So we had a a school group in, a college group in from Georgia in in the southern states of America. And they were sort of very comfortable with the fact that when we were showing them and here's some of his very rare Bibles and they, you know, they knew the Bibles and 
and so on. Uh, but then when we were showing them his science books, his you know his copies of uh, Newton, Galileo, Kepler, uh, Tycho Brahe, you know, first edition of Newton's Principia Mathematica, they were a little bit surprised that somebody who was a, a leading clergyman was up to date with the latest and the and the best uh, scientific knowledge of the day, and and they obviously saw the fact that you know being religious, uh, they were from obviously from a certain sort of uh, worldview that being religious that. You know, they found it strange to be up to date with the latest uh, technology and science. But obviously, Archbishop Marsh and, and his peers didn't. The other thing that he has, which is quite a significant uh, collection, as well as the mathematics and the language and so on, it is a really significant collection of Hebrew and Yiddish books. And I don't think we'd, we'd quite appreciated how significant the collection was until we had a specialist researcher uh, come and, and spend some time on those uh, a few years ago. And he was able to point out to us that whereas we had thought in the old days uh, that one book was a Hebrew book, for example, as a specialist, he was able to go through. We knew enough to to open a Hebrew book from the back, essentially, you know, and uh, to transcribe uh, the the letters in the in the mid twentieth century and and get the title. Whereas this specialist was able to really point out to us just the rarity of the books and the fact that what we thought was perhaps one Hebrew book was a collection of two or three Hebrew pamphlets and Yiddish uh, pamphlets as well from all over. Uh, Europe. So it was interesting to see the uh, one Hebrew book from Constantinople in the 1490s uh, and another uh, Hebrew book from Lisbon in 1489. And we just really hadn't appreciated the significance of those. So it really is a, a, an intriguing uh, collection. One other thing about Archbishop Marsh, just in an Irish context, because I often say the collection is very European in its in its context and in and its and its remit. And in a way it's sort of the library fits now much more what it is uh, a sense of being Irish now because we're we're very firmly and clearly European and that's what we're we're very interested in to, into the future. So a library in which there's a huge number of European books from all across the European continent, from Lisbon to Moscow to Constantinople, uh, is is quite important and allows us to tell a story in the 21st century about how Ireland has always been part of the European continent and part of European movements. But Marsh was also interested in the Irish language as well. Uh, and he was quite surprised when he came to Ireland that there still wasn't 170 years after the start of this little thing called the Reformation uh, by a certain individual called Martin Luther, that there wasn't still uh, a full version of the Bible available in Irish. So he was very clear as, and I think it was interesting that he was an outsider and a linguist, uh, and he pushed towards making sure that there would be from the 1680s onwards. And that's a remarkably late date from the 1680s onwards that you could only that, from that date uh, with Archbishop Marsh's really pushing forward uh, have a copy of the Bible uh, in Irish. And he was very interested with this quite a significant collection uh, of Irish language manuscripts from the medieval period, but also into the 17th century in his personal collection. And Jason, listening to you and Amy, I'm struck by how passionate both of you are about outreach, about bringing people into marshes, showing them the collections. Yeah, I think that would, and I think maybe Amy would agree, that was certainly an older form of librarianship, the idea that we have the knowledge, we're going to keep it, you know, and once we keep it, it's it's very important. And actually, that's an interesting phrase, even the word keeper, and it's one of the reasons why we changed uh, the title for the person who's in charge of the library, because if you think about traditional the librarian was always called the keeper. And if you think about the way in which we use that word today, we use it in terms of something which is 
uh, precious, either a goalkeeper or a wicketkeeper or something that's dangerous and you, and you have to control a zookeeper or a beekeeper. So we wanted to change that sort of proprietorial idea that we have it, we're keeping it safe and you stay away. Uh, and so the, the, the title has changed to, to director. And, and it's something that we really have pushed out and, and we've been very lucky to have a, a very... Uh, very talented uh, education and outreach officer who's developed a whole series of activities for school children coming in because the one thing we're conscious of is that and we've talked about it here a little bit is that we're talking about you know uh, some old dead white guys uh, associated <laughs> with the upper echelons of the Episcopal Church in the 18th century. Uh, it might be sort of hard to sell that to uh, a 10-year-old uh, child and uh, we've been sort of aware of that. We had one incident where in real time we saw on, on Twitter uh, a mother a few years ago had, had tweeted how there was a kid outside on the front gate and she couldn't get him through the door because he was going, oh no, not another library. And And we actually kind of really sympathised with the kid because the idea of being dragged in to see 18th century archbishops' books might not be uh, the most exciting way to spend your time. So we've we've done a whole series of educational programmes for, for school children, but also much more fun things as well. So I think I'm right in saying we were the first library, in, in certainly in Ireland, to bring in a minifigure trail now, uh, and and essentially, so which is one, great, yeah, it's so it's, amazing, and the kids absolutely love it. And and what's most interesting about it is we devised it for children, but most of the people who do it now are adults, and and they come true. And we have a whole series of minifigures associated with the history of the library, that you know the really littlies can come in and they can find them on the shelves and they tick it off and then they get a little prize like a bookmark or so on. But the slightly older children uh, can have a, a fact sheet go through and and find a little fact about each of the figures on the uh, on on the sheet. So that's that's fun uh, and we move the figures around and we change them we, we have guest figures uh, but they range from you know Archbishop Marsh himself uh, to Grace Lawless his wayward niece who got married in a tavern in Castleknock uh, down to uh, Dracula as Dracula, well oh because yeah. of course Bram Stoker used <laughs> yes. the, the library exactly yeah yeah because I was going to ask you about famous users Bram Stoker is one James Joyce used it as well and I think references it Yes, the the uh, cer- certainly uh, James Joyce was was haunting the the area uh, around Marsh's Library in about 1902. It was quite a, an unsalubrious area in uh, at, at that time. But I think Yeats it was had said to him, "Oh, if you really want to understand the medieval period, you have to read a, a certain writer called Joachim Abbas." And uh, Joachim Abbas was a sort of a heretical. Uh, writer who is now still on the index of the Catholic Church. His books are still on the index of the Catholic Church. As the uh, recent papal nuncio told me on a visit, he he looked at one of these books that I was showing him and he, he said to me with a glint in his eye, uh, Charles Brown, he said, uh, you know, this book is still banned. <laughs> uh, so he... So when Joyce was looking for the works of Joachim Abbas, he couldn't get them for obvious reasons in the National Library or in University College Dublin. Uh, As a boy from a Jesuit background, he would never have darkened the door of Trinity at the time. So so, uh, Yeats uh, pointed him in the direction of Marsh's Library and he came to read this particular book. And uh, because Joyce used absolutely everything in his works, uh, that incident uh, is in Ulysses, in which he says, come out of it, Stephen, beauty's not there, nor in the stagnant bay of Marsh's library where you read the fading prophecies of Joachim Abbas.
Brilliant. Uh, I love the way Joyce is able to, to bring in everything and, 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 and make all these episodes from his life part of the literature. Uh, Janae, I mentioned at the start when I was introducing you about how you're using AI technology to examine the material. How on earth are you doing that? That's a great question. So um, fortunately for me, uh, Read Co-op, an EU-sponsored uh, collective, has created this um, handwritten text recognition tool called Transcribus. So it's an AI. Um, you can feed into it images of, of text and then um, apply different handwritten text recognition models. And that helps to detect the text on the on the page. To be clear, it is a tool. It is not um, foolproof. It is not 100% reliable or trustworthy. You absolutely need a person double-checking these transcriptions. Um, but for example, I'm using, I've modified a, a model that was created by uh, Maxime Goyer and his, his team in, in Quebec to, to look at, um, at these 17th century French texts. And I'm feeding in my own transcriptions and, and building an, another public model that will be available to anyone in the world who wants to, to use the, the model for free to apply to different documents. Um, and so what this does is I can only transcribe so many letters by hand in a day. Um, but with the assistance of the AI model, I can transcribe more of those um, 1,258-odd letters at Marsh's in, in the time period that I have to be working. So the other advantage of this is it means that that model can be applied in the future to other texts written by these various authors. So we've already seen that the same people who are writing to Elie Buero here um, in, in the collections that we have in Marsh's, there are also letters that were originally part of this collection in France um, in, at the Bibliothèque de l'Histoire du Protestantisme Français. There are letters in Rhode Island. <laughs> there are letters in uh, Utrecht. We've got a range of letters connected to Elie kind of um, all over the world, pointing um, again to his, his, the interconnectedness of these networks uh, of people at the time period and the dispersion um, after exile. So yeah, th this, this technology can hopefully help more people transcribe documents that maybe are not as well preserved as the documents at Marsh's or um, get, give more people access or, or, or leg up in reading these materials if they're not um, lucky enough to have the time that I have currently to go through and be working on transcriptions. And is that the great benefit of these new technologies and the real potential there? It's speeding up things that would take a huge amount of time and then it's also allowing you to make these connections with other collections elsewhere in the world. So so a scholar or an interested person wanting to find out more, they can really, they don't have to, in the old days, you know, spend a lot of time planning a visit and then travel around the world to try and look at maybe only one or two letters. Well, I think I think it, it works in both directions, actually. So um, you earlier mentioned um, kind of the openness of Marsh's library and the ethos of the library. And that was something I fell in love with um, before I even got to come here. Right. Even in the first round of, of interviews, I was super excited to see how passionate Marsh's is about open access. And by by being able to, to digitize these transcriptions and make them available to everyone, um, it makes it easier for researchers um, with or without tremendous funding all across the world to see what is in these texts. Is there a reason, and especially with the scan, uh, uh, the images side by side, is there something in these documents that maybe they should come in person to investigate? Um, and that allows them to maybe justify that in a grant proposal or try and get funding to come in person. Um, but then also in cases where that's not necessary, then, yeah, it, it opens up the, the material for study. And these letters have incredible interests. Um, there's medical interests, there's social history interests, there's theological interests, there's linguistic interests. Um, 
like Archbishop Marsh, uh, Ailey himself is also a bit of a linguist. He translated um, text from from uh, classical Greek into French. So um, there, some of these letters have bits of Latin, Greek, uh, French, Italian. You've got kind of a range of things going on. Um, and so, yeah, th- being able to open these texts up to people faster um, and make those connections across archives is such a beautiful um beautiful thing. And if you're interested in medical history, you can also get a sense of what doctors were prescribing Absolutely. at those times. And, and, and how, how, I suppose, how good were the prescriptions and how crazy were some of them? I, I will say that I would personally not be as interested in all the bleeding that was taking place. Uh, I, I'm not not so convinced that that was so beneficial as, as was seemingly the case. pigeon? Was one prescription yeah. with a pigeon? <laughs> so, um, so pigeons were supplied to Ailey. I'm not entirely con- con- sure of exactly how how uh, those pigeons factored into... Uh, you put a pigeon the, on your head, isn't that The it? medicine, but I will yeah. say Cure that the something. pigeons that were sent uh, in the letter, it was, uh, it was uh, the letter was accompanied by a, 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 a cove of pigeons and the pigeons were the least ugly of the troop. That's how uh, their, their, their benefit was determined by how healthy and hale these pigeons appeared to be. They seem to be a lot of, shall we say, he was living in La Rochelle, which was a yes. port city with lots of sailors. So there seemed to be... Uh, quite a, shall we say a number of communicable sociable diseases oh, no. that sailors yes. might have uh, oh, no. uh, contracted mm-hmm. so there were a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, prescriptions that I, I've seen for. Uh, I don't think we'd be getting into sex and scandal <laughs> no. on, a, on a show about Marsha's library, but I suppose you oh, did. It's definitely in the letters, and yeah. um, and and in fact, um, you've got you've got that not just in the medicine, but also in some of the legal texts. So, for example, there's a letter that deals with actually a woman successfully petitioning for a divorce from her husband. Um, because of his scandalous behavior and basically the fact that he had essentially turned their home into a brothel um, and also he was a bit insane. And so uh, the, the the letter kind of comments on, well, she, she won her case and, and it took almost no effort because all it took was her husband's personal testimony in court. Um, okay, well, we are talking history and tonight we are talking about the history of Marsh's library, a fascinating run through 300 and more years. We're going to take a quick break now and afterwards we're going to find out about what happened to Marsh's library after independence and its future in the 21st century. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and we're talking about the history of Marsh's library. The website www.marshlibrary.ie and it's a wonderful uh, resource, both the website and indeed the library itself, one of the great Irish treasures and uh, very much uh, recommend it to anyone interested in seeing just a, a beautiful library from our past, but also a beautiful way of studying and thinking about issues that are still relevant for us today. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jason McGelligot, who is the director of Marsh's Library, Amy Boylan, assistant librarian of Marsh's Library, and Dr. Janae Olsman, who is a postdoctoral researcher working on the French collections there. Uh, Jason, what happened after Ireland became independent because this was very much uh, an institution connected to the old regime. So so how did Ireland becoming first a free state and then a, a fully independent? How did that change things? Uh, in short, I, I think they tried to lock themselves away for about 50 years, uh, thinking that this independence malarkey would, would never sort of catch on or, you know, that, that eventually the, the Irish would see sense and and go back to the to the old regime. Uh, that's sort of the short, flippant uh, answer. But I think, uh, realistically, uh, as you say, they they really were part of the the old regime. They saw themselves as part of the the state, which was the United Kingdom of Great Britain uh, and Ireland. They obviously had a 
so they were associated with the with the uh, Anglican Church, uh, but also very much many people involved in the library would have seen themselves as uh, politically and culturally British. There's a, there's an interesting sort of moment in the 1880s when people start to come to the library and begin to sign their names in Irish in the visitors' register. And intriguingly, what happens is, and you can just see the the librarian fuming because uh, after the person has gone, and I assume it's after the person has gone, the librarian has written the the name in English after the the, the person has signed it in Irish. So you know, the, there's there's this sort of idea something is changing in Ireland in the 1880s and the 1890s, and and the library isn't isn't happy. So when the First World War started, the uh, a number of the librarians joined up. Uh, one of them was killed at at Suvla Bay. Uh, in uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the library was very shocked by uh, e- Easter week. Uh, a number of the books were damaged uh, in the library because we were close to Jacob's Biscuit Factory. And uh, and really the, the result of Easter week was that uh, one of the younger members of staff joined up uh, with the British Army as well. So it really saw itself as part of the state and uh, it was very much traumatised uh, during the War of Independence uh, feeling that uh, it was isolated and uh, and very much the staff were were shocked by uh, the independence uh, movement. There's an intriguing uh, letter to uh, to Michael Collins early in 1922 saying that uh, they were hoping that the Irish state was going to continue to pay the small little grant. Uh, and Michael Collins' secretary gave a, a wonderfully diplomatic and political. Uh, answer saying that as far as the new provisional government was concerned, for the moment, there was no question of not continuing to pay the grant. Uh, but at the same time as the uh, library was looking to get the grant from from the from the government, uh, they were very clear that something had changed that they weren't happy with. So in 1924, the new Chief Justice of the Irish Free State tried to come to the library uh, as part of the uh, annual Governors and Guardians meeting. Uh, and uh, Hugh Kennedy wrote a, a very polite and uh, very charming letter, in fact, saying that he was looking forward to coming and the library wrote back to him and said, uh, please don't come to the meeting because you're the Chief Justice of something called the Irish Free State and we recognise the Chief Justice of the Kingdom of Ireland. Uh, Hugh Kennedy wrote back to them and said, I really do understand terrible things have happened uh, over the last few years, but I really want to move forward and I'm really interested in the library and so is the new government. And their answer was to write back and say, please don't get in contact with us again because we don't want to have to be very rude to you. Uh, so we're assuming that Hugh Kennedy took the message and didn't turn up on the day and that they didn't have to lock him out. Uh, but that led to a period of drift for about 50 years uh, in which many of the people associated with the library until the early 1970s were of the generation who really uh, would have held themselves apart from, from the state. Uh, and it wasn't until 1971 that the Chief Justice of Ireland was invited back uh, to take his rightful place on the board as the uh, as one of the governors and guardians of, of Marsh's library. And uh, so it's two generations after independence. And I, I think it's also telling that that change came after the North had exploded. There, there was a realisation two generations on that uh, they needed to get over it and they needed to move on and they needed to realise that uh, the future uh, in the Republic uh, would be fine for the library. And Amy, now it's very much a library of the 21st century. There's always conferences and exhibitions 
sessions, lectures. I was at the Irish Legal History Society discourse uh, a few months ago there and like a wonderful setting for all of these things. And you have a new exhibition opening on Tuesday. Our new exhibition is on uh, North America. And lots of maps. Lots of maps, yes. Yeah, so, so Jason, tell us about that. Yeah, lo- lo- lots of maps. Uh, essentially, and, and, and we, we've had a bad run of things, so we have to we be have, honest. We've yeah. had a bad run, so True. we had we've a... Cursed with we've been cursed with. Uh, so we had uh, an exhibition to open in 2020 on uh, China, and then two COVID. days later, COVID locked us down. We had an exhibition of really early Russian books. So we had a set of books published in Moscow in the 1560s under Ivan the Terrible and Russian mm-hmm. maps. And uh, and then just as the catalogue was going to press, uh, Putin sent the tanks in. So oh, we right. had to cancel that. So my colleagues were saying to me, don't do a, an exhibition on any country now coming up. Uh, and they were terrified something would happen. But the we're mummy's do- curse. The, the mummy's <laughs> curse, yeah, that's it. So so they were terrified. People were saying, oh, there's going to be a war. Don't do anything on, on any particular country. But we're doing it on colonial America, uh, maps and images from... Everybody loves maps. I mean, that's the thing. Is yeah. like, right, it's a nice yeah. popular exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so it starts in the 1550s and it ends just after independence uh, uh, with uh, the Carey Bible. So uh, 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 a very kind uh, gentleman, Fergal McCabe, donated to us a copy of the first Catholic Bible uh, ever published in the United States, published by uh, an Irishman called Matthew Carey in Philadelphia uh, in 1790. And it was the start of the idea of religious toleration under the new uh, republic, and it was it was sponsored by a number of de- uh, signatories to the Declaration of, of Independence. So, so we worked through the colonial history uh, and all of sort of the shades of, of various darkness uh, involved in the colonial history, uh, trying to do that as light as possible, as well as uh, showing the maps. And we end up with the independent state. Amy will bring something into the reading room for another reader, and I'll get to grab a peek at. Um, one of these fabulous maps with, um, you know, that, that they just described for the exhibit that um, has tribal lands very clearly designated. And you get to see um, maps that as someone growing up in the U.S., I, I never would have seen um, these sorts of maps um, in, in my classrooms and, and just incredible materials coming in and out and really absolutely delightful people. So, yeah, I would urge everyone here in Dublin and, and in Ireland um, more broadly to take amazing advantage of this um, and uh, certainly I will be bringing people uh, from across the Atlantic over to come visit as well. OK, well, that's a wonderful note on which to end tonight's discussion on the history of Marsh's Library. My thanks to Dr. Jason McGilligan, the director of Marsh's Library, Amy Boylan, who's assistant librarian at Marsh's, and Dr. Janae Oldsman, who's a postdoctoral researcher working on the French collections in the library. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.